know, our culture is obsessed with a lot of different things. One thing in particular that I'm a little bit sympathetic to right now is the current trend in superhero-related entertainment, uh, movies and such. You have the Marvel franchise. You have DC trying to match the same sort of success. And there's something exciting about that. All the things that, that most of us who were into comic books when we were young were made fun of are now making the world billions of dollars. And it reminds me of the old song, you know, I was country you know, when country was uncool. Well, you know, I was was Marvel when Marvel was uncool, you know. Uh, it's out there, it's extremely popular, and there's something about it that does have a broad sort of appeal. The idea of people who have abilities that far surpass most normal people. But if you're not sure, I can certify for you that all of that is fiction. It's all fantasy. Captain America may be a really fascinating character, but... He doesn't actually exist. I know it's kind of sad because if any of them you think would be kind of cool, perhaps Captain America might be, might be the one. Seems like a good guy. Seems to admit God exists. That puts him above most of all the others. But regardless, they're all fantasy. But the Bible actually does have a particular group of people that stand out in that way that seem to display abilities above and beyond normal humans, even though they were normal humans. And they come up from time to time in sermons and examples, and these are the mighty men of King David. The mighty men, just a name like, doesn't it sound like a comic book title? The mighty men, right? The mighty men of King David. And they were astonishing characters, a very interesting lot. Some, on one hand, virtually idolize them, And on the other hand, some have no idea who they are and perhaps haven't actually read about them before. But they are fascinating people, and there's a great deal to learn both from their strengths and from their weaknesses. And that's what I'd like to talk about today in the sermon. I want to talk about the mighty men and what their lives can teach us. And so the sermon today is titled, Beyond the Mighty Men, Beyond the Mighty Men. Now, if you haven't heard of them before, it's worth taking the time to read in some detail. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. And we're going to read a lot here at the beginning just to illustrate the sort of people that we're talking about. We're going to read from 2 Samuel 23. There is a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And it's actually worth reading them both. We won't take the time to do that, but it relates uh, a few different names in each place. Uh, Some of the tales it relates differ a bit, not because it's a contradiction, but you have two different storytellers explaining different facets of history. If you read two different books about the American Revolution, you're going to read two different sets of details, not that they didn't actually happen. And that's one thing that's remarkable about these people. They did exist. You read about some of their exploits and you might wonder, well, maybe it's just mythological or something. These are living, breathing human beings. And they did what they did with, with, with muscle and with uh, intelligence and with skill. It wasn't like in the comic books. There was no super soldier serum. There was no gamma radiation. Uh, these were just individuals who were very good at what they did. Now, what they did happened to be kill a lot of people. Uh, but they were very good at doing just that. So in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we'll start in verse 8. And we read, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And again, we're just going to read through, but we'll come back and make some comments just a moment. 
These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, that doesn't mean one swing of his sword and 800 men fell dead. This would have been a long and protracted event. Uh, This would have been very difficult battles. We have to understand as we read all these, I'll go ahead and say this at this point. Battles back then weren't like battles are now. Now, we do have battles like that now from time to time. Today, though, we're, warfare is a bit different, right? It's sort of video game warfare to a certain extent. It was kind of stunning to a lot of us when the first Iraq war took place, the Gulf War, to be, see some of the video footage of what these people doing various strikes with missiles. They're just watching this sort of black and white screen, sometimes using uh, heat vision and different things, and you're seeing a missile plow into a building, and you see people run away from it, and then you see other explosions, and you're watching people die from thousands of miles away, literally across the world. There's this kind of cold distance. But for the most of the history of mankind, that's not what killing has been like. It has been very face-to-face. In fact, one of the most passionate articles I ever read arguing against why women should not have equal status in the military, as in doing all the things that men do uh, in the military, was argued by someone who had fought in one of the wars, one of the wars in Iraq and in that region. And he talked about how it got to be hand-to-hand at a certain point, and he was struggling with uh, with a a Taliban uh, fighter, and how there were there were no weapons at hand. It was just brutal. And it was hand, literally hand to hand, and it only won, and I won't go into the details, but as he t- had to grab a rock and just bash at the person. And he describes in, again, detail I won't give what that was like, and, and what the look on the man's face was, and in his eyes, uh, and, and, and the consequences of that. It was brutal and ugly. And he said he did not want to live in a nation who thinks it is right to send our wives and our daughters into such circumstances. And he is 100% right. We don't participate in the military at all in the church of God. And we'll talk a little bit about that in this. But that said, for a nation that does, that refuses to lean on the blood of Jesus Christ to protect itself and therefore has to rely on the blood of its sons and daughters, it is a shame, a satanic shame, that the country somehow thinks that's a good idea in the name of social agendas instead of what's in the name of uh, what's right. It's just absolutely abominable. So when we talk about these men, and we talk about someone killing 800 men, this would have not been hit a button, and there's a nuclear bomb that goes off or something, and 800 people dies. This would have been sometimes one man at a time. There would have been blood and viscera. Uh, The people would have come out of such things, sometimes absolutely soaked uh, in, in the blood of their enemies. This was very gritty and very real. And here you had someone that in one battle killed 800 people, uh, which was an astonishing feat at the time. Verse 9, after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. You do have to wonder if he was made fun of that there in young, uh, young ancient Israel school. Uh, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. He couldn't even let go of his sword uh, because he attacked. Everyone else had, had run away. 
And he stood his ground and just kept fighting and fighting uh, to the point that when it was all over, he couldn't let go. Like the, you imagine the people coming to him, they had to pry, you know, his fingers, you know, off of his sword. I will say in editorial, we have had days like that when you've had to pry the red pen, you know, off of our, I know it's not as dramatic. But that said, it's interesting, it says the eternal, verse 10, the eternal brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. That is, he did the job and everybody else, oh, hey, let's go get their stuff. You know, they were all busy running away uh, and then he actually stood his ground. Verse 11, after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field and defended it and killed the Philistines. So the eternal brought about a great victory. I've often said, you know, this is the most famous lentils in the Bible. To me, I think of these, when you talk about lentils, some of you think of going back to Egypt for all their leeks and all the rest. And I think, I don't know, I think of this guy. I shall defend this field of lentils, you know, to my last breath, you know, and, and fighting off all these people. And, and God achieved a, a victory through him. Verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. We had the privilege uh, during the living education Israel trip to, to be at the caves of, of Adullam. It says, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, here he is, he's under you know, difficulty. He just happens to say, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He wasn't literally commanding anyone to do so. He was just expressing the longing of his heart. There's times myself, I've, I've thought, ah, just to be under the stars of a Texan sky, you know. When, but no one clobbers me in the head and kidnaps me and I wake up there like, oh, you know, we did it to serve you. Well, here, some guys heard this and decided, you know what, we're going to do it. So verse 17, he had, uh, no, sorry, I skipped uh, verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the eternal. Now, here are these guys. They get this idea that, man, you know, we're going to do it. And by the way, it's easy to ascribe super pure motives to these guys. It's very easy to do that. Let me highlight, nowhere does it say they were filled with God's spirit and were converted Christians. And let me say, I've known plenty of men to get a wild and crazy and stupid idea because they know it will cement their place in history for all time. You know, no one's ever jumped that many cars, man. I'm going to do it on my motorcycle. And uh, that's what's on his gravestone is this man attempted to jump all these cars, you know, the uh, one car too many, apparently. So we don't really know their motivations other than at least there was some loyalty there. They were moved by that. You know, here's David who said that and they go and they fight. It's not just sneaking in. They have to fight through all these people. It's not just the getting there. I just imagine the getting back. Don't spill the water. I'm trying. A guy's fighting, you know, and they've got a bucket and maybe they get, we need the backup bucket. Go get it. Anyway, they get, they get it to David, but David refuses to drink it. You know, David recognizes this wasn't, this was not something you're supposed to do. They were definitely not reading the, uh, uh, was a Dr. Meredith's book, the uh, Seven Laws of Radiant Health, you know, and, and pursuing this. He'd much rather have living men to work with him than go to get, fetch him a drink of water. And he says in verse 17, he said, Far be it from me, O eternal, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. And these things were done by the three mighty men. You know, there are those in this world that do inspire other people to line up behind them. 
And David recognized that comes with a responsibility. There's a difference there between him and his men, and we'll get to some of those a little bit later. And when people will do crazy things for you, you have a responsibility to ensure they don't do those things. What if he had? What if he had said, thank you, men, and he had chugged it down and, and, and just really kind of cheered them for that? How many other men would have been inspired to risk their lives to do something like this? And David refused. David wouldn't, wouldn't participate in that. Uh, but yet it is recorded because it was a stunning, a stunning feat and definitely a certain measure of, of human loyalty. Verse 18. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against the 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Uh, sorry, of three, therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Let me highlight right here at the beginning, I'm not going to pretend to get all of this right, and most people who say they get it right don't have it right. It's very confusing here, the count of people. It keeps referring to three, but there's one three, then there's another three, and is that three part of the other group, or is it the initial three? And then it talks about the 30 mighty men, which is rough when it lists 37 names, right? So it's, and then you got Chronicles, which has a different collection. You start to get the sense that it was a group of men that eventually the number wasn't as important as who they were, that it identified with these people. And sometimes it was the 30, and maybe there were times as one died off here and there was the 25, and times it was the 36. Uh, but regardless, it's talking about these particular groups of people. And there definitely were a special three uh, that stood out, but then there was this other three, and, and it's, it's very confusing as to who they're a part of. I, just, I would just say don't, don't let that distract you too much. Verse 20, Benaniah, uh, sorry, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. This is verse, verse 20. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. Now, if that wasn't enough, he also gone down and killed a real lion uh, in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. You know, the details are important to who's writing this stuff. It's not just he killed a lion. Oh, no, no, the lion was in a pit. And it was snowy, man. I'm not kidding. It was slippery. There was so much snow. Uh, these were the tales that you would tell. And the details are important. You know, if you play, if you won a game in high school, and it was, it was a real close game, just a really close game, and you played a key role in that, I guarantee you that if it was raining cats and dogs during that game, you would not fail to mention that as you are telling the story, right? Because it is part of the glory. It's part of what you overcame. It's part of what you achieved. And, and these tales pack in those kinds of details. Uh, in fact, we go on with the story here of Beniah, verse 21. He killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. Just spectacular. It was a spectacular man. I don't know why I like that so much. Anyway, he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he went down to him with a staff. It wasn't even a spear. It was just a stick. He went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Boom. There was no mic for him to drop afterwards. But regardless, it was it was a big deal. And it says actually, and I think of the record in Chronicles, this is a really tall guy. He was just really, really tall. So verse 22 says, These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among three mighty men. Verse 23, He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. You know, these things. Because you keep track. Even if it's confusing now, if time has made it hard to, dis to exactly pick apart, you know you keep track. 
You know, some of you reflecting back on glory days in high school or even college, and the details are important, right? Why do we keep stats of all of our sports stars? Like, oh, this guy's got better RBI or this or that. Why? Because the details matter when it comes to human glory, right? And you care about those kind of details. Uh, moving on, let's see. Verse 23. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to a first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Verse 24. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elanon, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. He goes through a list of several. It doesn't really give much more of their details anymore, but it goes down through verse uh, we'll see in 38, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Now, depending on the resource you read, one I thought was actually pretty good, and it was serious. It was trying to give a, a, a legitimate description and research into the mighty men and their character, who they were and the rest. And it actually straight up referred to them, uh, this is the International Standard Version, actually the translation of the Bible, referred to them as David's special forces which is kind of what they were. They were just sort of David's special forces. They were the ones that he could send in to take care of things that other people couldn't. But they weren't the idea of mighty men. The, the Hebrew word translated mighty men is giborim. Uh, G, well, I'll get it right. I wrote, I wrote it down. G-I-B-B-O-R-I-M. Giborim. And other nations had mighty men. That word is actually used quite a bit. Other nations had giborim. They had mighty men. Sometimes it's added of valor, mighty men of valor. But the word valor, just like mighty men, it's not meant to convey a moral value. It's morally neutral. It just means strong, uh, perhaps brave. And there are brave villains sometimes, right, that are they're willing to try to take on difficult odds. The idea of mighty men is morally neutral. It does not indicate good guys or bad guys. It just indicates guys of particular pow- prowess and strength. Sometimes not even in strength of arms. There's mighty men concerning a wealth, for instance. But it's morally neutral in that sense. For instance, just for uh, one example, turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. Thank you for the water. Genesis 10, and we read here in verse 8 of ancient days, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. The words there, mighty one, are exactly the same as the word describing David's mighty men. It's the exact same Hebrew word. And Nimrod was not a good guy. If you look through what we understand of the history... And some of it could be questionable, but it does seem to all point in the same direction, uh, that he was uh, a dictator-like person. He actually said, verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the eternal. The suggestion there is not just so much that he was mighty in God's eyes, but he actually was in opposition to uh, the eternal. Uh, a lot of bad things in modern culture have their origins with Nimrod. Calling him a mighty man wasn't meant to be praiseworthy in the sense of morality or in sense of God's goodness. It was simply a neutral word. In fact, you can go through. I'm not going to give you all the examples. But as as Israel went through the promised land, conquering, it talks about the mighty men of this pagan country and the mighty men of that pagan country, the mighty men of valor of this country. Uh, and that, that phrase, is it, it's referring to physical skill and prowess. It's not evaluating their relationship to God in any way or morality in any way. 
Uh, I'll list some examples if you'd like to look them up later. Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2. Uh, Judges chapter 5 and verse 23. Second Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 21. But honestly, if you just go to any concordance worth its salt, you're going to see a lot of usages of that phrase. And the, the use in Genesis 10 is exactly the same as the use in, as we just saw used in, uh, uh, Second Samuel, because Nimrod is also referred to in First Chronicles chapter one and verse ten, and the exact same word is used in terms of him being a mighty man. So it's important to keep that in mind when we're talking about this kind of skill and prowess. We're not saying these are necessarily good people. We're not necessarily saying that they're uh, that God is pleased with every aspect of them. We're talking about how great they are at what they do, and they were frankly remarkable at killing people. Uh, And we're very spurred by certain forms of loyalty. One of the things I do like about the man, and from having growing boys, uh, it's important, is examples of specific masculine traits. And we do live in a world where young men need examples that stand out. The willingness to stand your ground against terrible odds. Uh, We need examples like that for young men today. We need examples of toughness, being willing to continue at something when others would turn around, being willing to continue. Like, you know, the fellow who couldn't get his hand off of his sword. I've done very little work like that. I do remember once at Texas A&M, before the big bonfire collapse that happened years later, which was just devastating to the culture there, uh, I remember contributing to the bonfire when I was at college. Some of you may have heard of the old the Texas Aggie bonfire. It was huge, and we'd build it up before the big game against Texas. And they had a, this fellow had a, a huge collection of trees, this just kind of large forest somewhere, and the Aggies were free to go out there and cut down all the trees they needed. So I did my part, went down and, and cut down trees, and you tape up your hand, and you're doing it, and, oh, your hands are getting blistery and nasty, and it's painful, and it hurts. And while there's a little joy in that, you know, it's kind of like, ah, oh, look at me, I'm a real man. And then afterwards, like, Oh, this hurts so bad. You know, it's just you, the pain starts to drown out anything like that. But at the same time, you push through that because you want to contribute. You want to do your part. And then at the end of the day, well, you're just in agony and everything and you hurts and you're tired and you're just glad you haven't chopped your own toes off, you know, during one of the strikes. And you just lay back and you appreciate that, right? Well, you want to be able to encourage boys to learn to do that because we need people in society that are willing to go through the pain, to continue to do the things that society and their families need them to do. They need those examples. Then they need examples also of competence, you know, extreme competence. In our society, we admire extreme competence, and that's not bad. Right, That's a good thing in general to admire competence. And it's beyond just the competence at killing people uh, like we see here, but even competence in the kitchen these days. Food network wouldn't exist if they didn't have people to show that somehow seemed to cook better than everyone else. I love to trace that back to the origins. I think Julia Child possibly, you know, you know Julia Child, some of you know that. Some of you maybe, a lot of you probably too young to remember Emerald. But I think just by throwing in a bam, you know, Emerald just suddenly elevated it where it seemed more masculine, you know, because you're not just putting salt in. It's bam, you know, you're putting, oh, that was, that was a lot more manly. You see how he said bam, you know, when he did that? When really you look at many of the great chefs in history, they often were men. There are a lot of great men in terms of uh, being great chefs. And we admire that sort of skill. Uh, woodworkers, have you ever seen something crafted 
in wood, that you just wonder, how is that even possible? This has to, is this a digital duplication of something? I'm actually seeing a real thing and you handle it in your hands and realize, man, a woodworker made that. Someone took a piece of a tree and was able to turn it into this marvelous design with intricate engravings and such that you just don't think is possible. And we admire things like that. But, but prowess is value neutral. Let me give an example, for instance, that's, that I'm almost sure many of you or most of you, if you're aware of who this is, will not mean much to you. And that's Eddie Van Halen. The, yeah, okay. Uh, the now dead guitarist for Van Halen, who died just recently. I, I don't know many of you here that would really enjoy many of his classic solos that really established him as perhaps the greatest uh, uh, electric guitar guitarist of all time. Uh, I, that's one of the few concerts I've actually been to as a young person. I went to a Van Halen concert back when their 1984 album came out. My best friend was busy, upset about Van Halen, uh, because they started to use more electric keyboards. He go, oh, they've gone soft. You know, they've gone soft. These are, these are my friend's brothers who were growing marijuana in their garage. I had a very exciting upbringing. Uh, so anyway, but I remember my mom and dad actually taking me and my friend and my sister to the concert and staying there. Because mom was the type who wanted to give us the experiences we asked for, but she wasn't going nowhere. She was going to be there. So I can't believe my mom and dad sitting to this Van Halen concert right next to the speakers. We couldn't hear anything afterwards, it seemed like, for days. But, yeah, I would never do that again. However, I was young and dumb and was impressed. And, and when Eddie Van Halen was on stage, there were times he would turn his back to the audience as he played his solos because what they would do is people who want to duplicate, try to do what he was doing, they would sneak in there with, at the time, video cameras, which was much harder to sneak in with back then. And they would try to record what he was doing just to figure it out because he could make that guitar do sounds that nobody else was doing. So he would turn his back so nobody could record him while he was, while he was playing it. And the things that he did absolutely changed how people play the electric guitar from that point on, uh, it really is remarkable. That doesn't mean you have to like it to understand there's some skill there. And it doesn't mean he was a good person. I think we can share many aspects of his life and conclude, don't let your kids grow up to be cowboys or Eddie Van Halen. You know, it's not exactly what you would want for your children. We're talking about skill, not necessarily Something that in isolation God points us to as a value in and of itself. Uh, let me just point one more example of, of incredible talent and skill uh, that's very different, and that's the Texas A&M marching band. Uh, my old mom, alma mater, I'll throw a plug in there for that. If you've never seen the Texas A&M marching band uh, play during halftime in a college football game, you have really missed out. It is something astonishing of what these people can do and look like one organic entity on the field as they're marching in between each other and the rest. And they're not falling down like dominoes, but it's just, it's just something beautiful to see that only comes through through precision and through skill and through constant, absolute focus and practice. And our world honors that kind of intense focus to establish true expertise. And in and of itself, it's not bad. But in and of itself, it isn't necessarily good either. It has to be attached to other things. In fact, just for that perspective, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 22.
Proverbs 22. And this is a verse that, at least since college, I think, has I've felt the pressure of. You should have passages in the Bible that, that push you in certain ways. And I know this is, this is one that is pressed on me in an uncomfortable way, but the right kind of discomfort. Proverbs 22, down at the bottom, all the way at the end of the chapter, verse 29. We're told, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. There is something to being truly good at what you do that unlocks doors other things just don't. But this also is a certain value-neutral statement. Actually, Mr. Robinson and I were discussing the Proverbs this week, and this is something we talked about, that it's, it's telling you how the world works and, and what things happen in the world but for instance, there are people who excel at their work that stand before kings and don't stand before unknown men, but they themselves are terrible people. There are people that have performed for the president or performed at the Kennedy Center that are just atrocious people in real life. Their moral stands are the equivalent of hot garbage. They're not people you would ever want your children to emulate. And yet, they do have remarkable skill that other people don't have. And we live in a culture because we've gotten so far from morality. We don't want to bring up morality that we tend to only focus on skill and proficiency and expertise to the point that it even rose to the presidency. If you look in the, the Clinton years, President Clinton, one of the, at the time, for those of you who don't know the details, I'm not going to explain them. It's a, we had a president whose life was... Not PG in many ways. And it was understood. And there was eventually an admission of a variety of things concerning adulterous acts, you know, in the White House and the rest. And one of the defenses of Mr. Clinton was what difference does that make? You know, the, the, ba the budget is balanced. Uh, he's been able to work with a Republican Congress. All, all these other kind of things that they would create where it doesn't make a difference. What difference does character make? We actually had a magazine at the time where that was the cover, if I recall. If it wasn't the cover, it was inside the magazine. I wish I had thought of it before now. Uh, whereas it was, a, it was an image of multiple presidents. They might have been there for the funeral of, of a past president. I, I really can't recall, but it was a great picture because they're all sitting there looking forward, uh, except for Mr. Clinton, who's kind of looking down and actually looking at the camera, the only one. And the title was, uh, Does Character Matter, if I recall. And I thought, well, he posed for our picture. That was, that was very nice of him. That was part of the argument for him, is what difference does it make, his morality and the rest, as long as he's running the country, right? As long as the trains are on time, right? As long as there's bread in the stores. And we've just gone further in that regard. Our culture honors this kind of expertise and disregards actual character. Uh, one more element I'll just talk about in terms of positive things. Uh, these men, the mighty men, had to have some kind of courage. I mean, it takes some kind of courage to do the things that they did. And courage is clearly something praiseworthy. I know Mr. Wesson has talked about it and others. If you seek to be a Christian and don't have courage and are not asking God to help you grow in courage, you will not have a successful Christian life. The Bible talks about how the cowardly will not inherit the kingdom of God. Courage is a necessity to be a Christian. Increasingly in this world, 
where it seems like the entire world and the powers that be want to stand up against all the things that we believe and not just believe, but seek to actively proclaim in the world. And so examples like this, they are good to talk to uh, with our children and the rest in terms of some of these kinds of qualities. But again, we have to be careful. You know, I've known some in the church. I don't know that I necessarily know any here, and I'm certainly not picking on any particular individual. But part of why I can say I'm not picking on a particular individual is because I've known several like this that are young in the church who get caught up with a fascination with the military. To the point they start to question, well, is it really wrong? You know, why, why can't I join the military? Why can't I, why can't I volunteer and serve? It seems like a noble thing to do. You look in the Old Testament and they were fighting in defense of their country, etc. And this is things I've heard from both young men and young women. Um, because maybe unlike the sermonette we just heard, we, we need to remember to reemphasize some of the basics, right? Like Again, like I think the sermonette was a good example of, emphasizing those basics that we do not serve in the military. We do not take up weapons with the goal of killing another human being. And yet I've seen that fascination. Why? Because I, let me say as a man, I kind of understand the appeal. There's something about special forces and their ability to... Uh, to go places other people can't and achieve objectives that other people can't. And it's appealing. And we should ask ourselves, well, what good am I doing by taking someone who's obsessed with the U.S. special forces and just turning their attention to the ancient Israeli special forces? Sometimes just making a substitution without addressing the issue isn't sufficient. You have to actually get to the issue. We, in other words, we have to be careful with these things. Just because these characters are biblical doesn't mean they're simply at, at the center of a bunch of good things. There's other things to learn from the lesson as well. It's easy to turn even biblical personalities like the mighty men of David into a strange sort of idol. A lens that's so focused that it actually causes us to lose sight of other things of God because they don't show up in the picture. Most examples that are given to us in the Bible, Jesus Christ, of course, being an exception, there tend to be pros and cons that we can learn. What does it mean to idolize anything? You know, Merriam-Webster, if you look into Merriam-Webster, it gives two definitions of idolizing. One is to literally turn something into an object of worship. I hope you know that's bad, right? Uh, my sister used to have a, a big poster of, I think it was the guitar player from Judas Priest, which alone ought to tell you, there's nothing good about a band named Judas Priest, right? Uh, but anyway, you know, she had these certain posters in her room, and, and you could say as a teenager, she idolized them. My sister's not here today <laughs> to hear all this. I ought to tell hey, go listen to my sermon online and just advance it to this part. Uh, but anyway, she did, and I've, I've got pictures of her, like, oh, look at these posters. She's, but she wasn't, she wasn't literally worshiping them. I didn't walk in her room once she's got a candle burning like, oh, la, 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 you know, she's just, you know, bowing before the pictures of the guitarist and the rest. But then you get to the second definition of idolize. To love or admire to excess. Uh, that hits a little closer to home. Sometimes we get too invested in something that we've gone into excess. And that excess isn't healthy. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, but you can't do that with biblical things. You can't do that with things out of the Bible. You absolutely can do that with things out of the Bible. We literally have examples of people doing that with biblical things. Uh, for example, you, you might remember the, the instance where there was a plague 
amongst Israel. And God told Moses to fashion this, uh, this brass or, or bronze serpent and to hold it up. And the people that looked at it, uh, that God would use that as a vehicle to, to healing them. And in many ways, it had the potential of being a picture of what Christ did. There's all sorts of symbolism there. But then you go read in 2 Kings and find out they were worshiping it. They'd kept it all of those years. And it turned it into an object of worship. And it says in 2 Kings 18 and verse 4, they had to destroy it. This was something that was made at God's own direction, with God's own instructions, given to God's own prophet and made by him for the people. And yet because of corruption amongst the people, even something designed at God's own instruction had been turned into something wicked and something terrible. The idea that just because it comes out of the Bible, it can't be abused would be a terrible mistake. It's not enough to substitute biblical things for worldly things. The deeper things have to be addressed. It's one of the things I remember hearing uh, way back at the camp in uh, Michigan that Mr. Weston pointed out once. If if any of you have been to the camp in Michigan, there was this place, at least the first place I heard it, if I recall, there was kind of this sort of loft at the common meeting area where you'd have breakfast and such. And I just remember a bunch of folks up there, and that's the first time I remember him saying that part of the goals of the camp program was not just to reproduce the past, uh, because it's, there was this idea among some that if we just, there are so many kids missing out, say, on sports because of the Sabbath, etc., that let's just give them church sports. Let's just give them those things so that they don't miss out. And yet, how many of them, it did not keep them in. The idea was if we do that, they won't be as tempted to leave and they will stay in the church. And then when it all fell apart, the vast majority of them did not stay in the church. It was not enough to substitute something worldly with something sort of baptized, if you will, in the church. And that was part of the goals of the camp program that were discussed is we want to do more than that. We want to learn from the mistakes of the past and try to improve on that. You know, idolizing guys like the mighty man is not dissimilar to what the world does with its heroes. Uh, And yet the outwardly impressive is not what God notices first. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, the last chapter of the book. And God addresses this kind of mentality. Verse 1, we read, Thus says the Eternal, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? He says, all those things my hand has made and all those things exist. You know, it says, you want to impress me. Do you really think you can make a building that is so beautiful, that is so large, that is so ornate that me as God, that I'm going to think, I didn't even think this was possible. That's amazing. That's just astonishing. He's saying, look, I actually, you know, the stone you just used to make that pillar I literally made the stone, he said. I wove together the quarks, right, to make the protons and the neutrons. I I defined the laws of gravity and the laws of physics and the strong force and the weak force. And I made all of that. You think you're going to do something that's going to impress me, that's going to say, I just didn't think this was possible. I totally owe you my undivided attention for the rest of your life. He says, that's not what gets it. That's not what gets it. You think slaying 800 men at one time? is what earns my attention. He says, look at the record of what I did. 
I have destroyed civilizations. I wiped out the whole world, but a few people on a boat. He says, what are you going to achieve in the world physically where you can suddenly say, now I know I've got God's attention. Rather, he says, the latter part of verse 2, says the eternal, but on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. These are the qualities that help us get God's attention and that will help our children get God's attention. In fact, uh, let's see, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel 16, we have God directing Samuel to anoint a new king of Israel. The old king of Israel, the current king of Israel, was very impressive. Saul was, head and shoulders above everybody. He looked like a king. He looked like a mighty man. But God was looking for something different. And in 1 Samuel 16, he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And son comes in, and Jesse says, this is clearly it. Look at the guy. Look at his muscles. It doesn't necessarily that Samuel went, whoa, look at that. Flex for me, boy. Uh, maybe he did. You know, men are men still today. It's like, oh, show us the guns. Well, he wouldn't have said guns, right? Show us the spears. No, I don't think he said that either. But regardless, you know, he's just, you know, hey, but this is clearly God's anointed. This is the one he wants. And God tells him something important in verse 7. Verse 7, we read, The Eternal said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Eternal does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Eternal looks at the heart. We are impressed with the physical achievements of some individuals in the world. But does that actually mean those individuals got God's attention in the way he wants his children getting his attention? God focuses on other characteristics that sometimes are in contrast to what mighty men are able to provide. Turn to Psalm 52. And I say... Characteristics that mighty men aren't able to provide, that's not true. Any human being, I didn't mean it quite so uh, explicitly, any human being can rise to these levels with God's help, but being a mighty man isn't sufficient. We want to be able to go beyond that. In Psalm 52 and verse 1, it says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. And he says in verse 1, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Same word, same Hebrew word. The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Being a mighty man didn't elevate, whether it was Doag or, or Saul, into a position of honor in God's eyes because there was still deception. There was a focus on destroying something that meant something to God. Going down to verse 7, David says, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, 
but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. God wants us to make him our strength. Uh, let's turn to, we're in the Psalms. Let's turn to Psalm 33, a few earlier. Psalm 33. And we're reminded of a significant truth. There are so many people worried about the state of the country because of the election and the rest. Was it stolen? Was it not stolen? You know, what's going to happen in court and all the rest? All I know is a lot of people think they know and a good 99.7% don't really know. I've heard people make the most adamant cases. That this election was stolen and here's no one could question this evidence until you look at actual details and discover, oh yeah, actually there's a lot of good reason to question that evidence. And then I've seen the other side. People say it's ridiculous to think the election was stolen. There's no way. Look at all these things. Look at all these reasons. There's no way to think that. And then you look at the details and discover, well, I don't think you know what you're talking about. There's a lot of question marks, you know, about all of this. Uh, okay, don't raise your hand. It's a trap. Okay, raise your hand if you think we're going to sort all this out. Anybody here in the room? Anybody? Good. You listen. Okay. Um, we're not. You know, literally the only thing that could save this country is repentance and turning to God. It is not putting Mr. Trump in office instead of Mr. Biden. It's not ensuring a clean election and Mr. Biden gets to be president. It's literally whether the country falls in line with what the living church of God is teaching about obeying him according to the prophecies of the Bible. This is not a time to get caught up and distracted in the things the world offers to catch us up and distract us. Because Psalm 33 and verse 16, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither it uh, neither shall it deliver by its great strength. All the kind of things that we'd want to focus on in a worldly way are not sufficient to save a country. It is not the physically mighty men. It's not the political mighty men. It's not the, the mighty men of academia that are going to save this country. The only thing that can save this country are humble men who seek their God with their wives and their children. And we need to make sure that's where we want to be and not in the other. Because I guarantee you, Facebook and Twitter and every other resource out there, Google, Google knows what you want to read. And, and Mr. Weston covered this just recently. And it will feed you everything your Jeremiah 17, 9 heart wants to read. And we've got to decide, I need to look for other things. How can we watch what's going on in the world and be aware and still focus on the right things? You know, when you mix up that drink, I'll take a sip with you. It's very difficult. I'm not saying it's not difficult. It's extremely difficult. And yes, the things we see around us are signs of the corruption that we see in the Bible. But it's so easy to focus on the symptoms. We should watch for symptoms, but we have to focus on the reason and not get caught up in what I've tended to call mighty man thinking. Mighty man thinking. And that's mistaking some things for what God wants to focus on when he actually doesn't. Uh, because we're thinking in a more worldly way, even when we think we're thinking in God's way. You know, for example, we, we mentioned the loyalty 
of David's men. They were remarkably loyal. Uh, it's actually, if anything characterizes them, in fact, it was just in the uh, men's room a while ago, and I was talking with uh, uh, someone who was passing out. I would tell you, not passing out, that sounds awful. Uh, someone who was walking on his way out of the men's room. And I, I'd tell you who it is, it's not shameful, but I feel like it's the men's room. It's not your business. But anyway, so as he was leaving, oh, what, he said, what's the topic of your sermon today? I said, oh, the mighty man. I want to talk about the mighty man. He said, oh, you know, they were really loyal. And he remembered the characteristic, which is important. They were loyal. For anyone to identify themselves with a mighty man and do something disloyal makes no sense whatsoever. It's one of their hallmark characteristics, including Uriah, as we read in verse 39. Uriah wasn't just loyal to David. He was loyal to his band of brothers, if you will, to the point that David tried to get him to go home to sleep with his wife, to cover up David's adultery with his wife, who was Bathsheba, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. I'm not going to relate the tale. You can read it yourself in 2 Samuel in chapter 11. But he essentially says, like, how can I do this? You know, I've got, I've got brothers in arms in the field that are dying, and I'm going to go home and just refresh myself and pretend they're not out there suffering? I just, I just can't do that. I can't do that. He was extremely loyal in that way, which in the end it was, ended up uh, costing him his life because David had him killed trying to cover up his adultery. But loyalty to a man, even a good man, or one's band of brothers can be misplaced and can lead one astray if we tend to get caught up in mighty man thinking and think that that loyalty is the same as following God. Let me look at some examples. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 26. First Samuel chapter 26. Here we have David is fleeing from Saul. And he's got his band about him, his mighty men. They're on the run with him. And it's difficult. You have to understand that it's not like they could just stop off in a hotel here or there. Uh, they're on the run. We, like I said, we visited the caves of Adullam and they were not luxurious. Right? They, they didn't, oh, look, there's a waterbed over there and there's a lava lamp and the rest. Uh, no, you know what a cave is? It's a cave. It's not some place you look forward to being in. It was difficult being on the run. And surely none of them longed to continue doing it. They'd much rather be back in Israel, you know, where really they knew, they knew David was the anointed king. Be back where they're, they're running the show. They're in their rightful place. Uh, what they, you can only imagine that that's what they would have wanted. And we have this circumstance in 1 Samuel chapter 26, starting in verse 5. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. He was asleep. King Saul, the one who wants to murder David, who's actually being messed with by demons, as we find out in other places, and knows David has been anointed by God to be king. They come across him and he's asleep. It says that David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp and the people encamped all around him. And then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? Uh, these, the sons of Zeruiah and such, were, were amongst his mighty men. And he's saying, hey, they're all down there. Let's go out. I mean, you want to find out how, how big is this group? Right? What are they going to do? How vulnerable are we? How far do we need to go? How much, how many provisions do they have? How long do they plan on being away? 
from headquarters, if you will, you know, as they're out there. Uh, and so Abishai says, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. So it's like, here's your enemy, and he is completely asleep, doesn't even know you're there, and literally in our day it would be like his gun is right by his head. You could just pick it up. And in the case of Abishai, this mighty man, it was clear God had opened the door to make possible everything God wanted. Saul clearly had disqualified himself. David was the anointed. And Abishai engages in some mighty man thinking. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Notice he invokes God. I personally believe he was sincere. It'd be hard to look at this scenario and not see that God hadn't engineered it. Now, therefore, please, he says, let me strike. No, actually, it was probably whispering, right? Now, please, he says. Uh, but if I whisper, you won't hear me. So he says, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. That is, it's one and done. He's right here. He's immobile. We can kill him right now. Your sworn enemy. And verse 9. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the eternal's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the eternal lives, the eternal shall strike him. Or his day shall come to die. Or he shall go out to battle and perish. But the eternal forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the eternal's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the eternal had fallen on them. So in fact, God had enabled all of this. The mighty man sees it and it's clear to him God has made all of this happen. And then he doesn't make the decision God would make. He makes a mighty man decision. It's time to strike and do what is obvious that God has set up. But David had insight that the mighty man didn't. It's interesting, God never describes any of the mighty man as having, as being a heart after his own, sorry, having a heart like his own. But he does describe David as being a man after my own heart. And in all of this that would seem so obvious to the mighty man, David saw further and recognized on principle it might look to you like that's what we're supposed to do. You, you know, you guys, you can tell it's real rough for him dealing with some of these guys because they always thought this way. But he said, far be it from me to go against the principles that I know God would have me hold. And there's no way God would have me do this. God will do whatever he's going to do, but he's not going to do this by my hand. David had not only a humility, but a deep insight into the mind of God. How is that developed? It's so easy to focus on, again, David's deeds, you know, grabbing, you know, a lion by the beard and killing it and the rest. But, you know, mighty men had done deeds like that. Benaiah had killed a lion in a pit. But we also have descriptions of David spending time with God's word, hiding God's word in his heart, meditating on the law all the day. And those things provided him insight into God's thinking and God's mind. That 
Abishai wasn't trying to ignore. He truly thought God had created this scenario, and God did. But he did not know what to do with it. He needed the kind of insight that David had, and David was able to go beyond mighty man thinking. Let's look at another example, Second, uh, 1 Samuel in 24. First Samuel 24. First Samuel 24 and verse 1. Again, David's still on the run. We read, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And it is a wilderness. We had the privilege of going out there as well during the living education trip and other than one waterfall, it was one waterfall and a bunch of yuck. So it was, it really was a wilderness. And it says in verse two, Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. There's a wonderful euphemism in the Bible. Uh, it's, we live in a very coarse world in which we just kind of say things sort of flagrantly, uh, that, uh, that honestly, polite culture would find other words for. Here, we had Saul had to attend to some needs. He had to go to the bathroom, we would say, in our lingo in English. And so he's going into this cave separately, right? Not like an animal. You know, he's going in someplace else, right? He's going to do this. And, you know, without getting into too much detail, let's just be upfront. You're pretty vulnerable in a situation like that. You know, Saul was very vulnerable at this particular place. He had to disrobe to a certain extent. It's not the kind of time. If you're a parent, you've been caught in those times when suddenly there's an emergency noise outside of the bathroom. The kids, ah, mommy, you know, the dog's on fire or something like that. You're like, yeah, really? This is, this is when, you know, this is going to happen. So here's Saul in an incredibly vulnerable moment recorded for us in the Bible. And what seems to the mighty man like another opportunity. So verse four, when then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the eternal said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So notice what they describe. Again, this is the mighty man thinking this is it. This is the day. This is the day where God said he would deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. In their mind, what is that? Run him through. Kill him. It's done. Then it's over. No more hiding. You're in charge. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. And David refused to do that, but he does go and cut part of Saul's robe as if he wants to make a point. But then verse 5, now it happened that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. That even doing that pricked his heart, which the Bible attests is like God's own heart. And it bothered him because it seemed dishonorable. In verse 6, he said to his men, he said to the mighty men, the eternal forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the eternal's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the eternal. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. God's thinking is not like human thinking. God's thinking is not like mighty man thinking. It is something beyond. It is something above. And that's what God calls us to. God calls us to that kind of thinking and that kind of heart. And it does not make sense humanly. But it is still right 
It's interesting. We won't turn to a lot of detail for this, but I do find it fascinating personally that Joab, who was one of the mightiest of men in David's service, is not actually listed there in uh, the book of 2 Samuel. His brothers are listed. His armor bearer is listed. And Joab's feats were astonishing. He got to be captain because of such feats. And yet he's not listed by name. Some have suggested that there's a, a nameless reference in one place where the mighty man is not named and that maybe that's Joab. I certainly can't tell. I can't wait to talk to Samuel and the scribes, you know, and, and get some details. But that said, he was in every aspect clearly a mighty man. And some have wondered why he was not listed, if that's the case. Well, it might have been because he dishonored himself in certain ways. You know, Joab's mighty man thinking benefited David sometimes. And other times it didn't. There were times when David needed to hear what he had to say. And there's other times when Joab's thinking was the exact opposite of God's. What was consistent in all of those was that Joab knew he was right. It's like, let's talk about Venn diagrams for the next 30 minutes. Now, some of you are familiar with Venn diagrams, where you're talking about some things, you put a circle around them to indicate those things. You talk about other things and put a circle around those, and you look at where the circles overlap, and it's true of both. And if you drew a circle representing David's interests and God's interests, and you drew a circle about Joab's interests and Joab's judgments, and they wouldn't be the same, but they would overlap some. And inside that overlap, Joab's advice and counsel was helpful to David. But you go outside of that intersection into Joab's circle, and it's not helpful, and it's not godly. The thing is, Joab thinks the same way about all of them. Because Joab is certain he is right. Perhaps the classic mistake that Joab makes, among several, is his support for Adonijah, David's son, instead of Solomon. When David wanted Solomon to be king, because God had told him that Solomon would be king, as David is getting old, Joab throws in with Adonijah. And it's a big conspiracy to try to make him king instead of uh, Solomon. And it is easy to dismiss Joab's thinking in that. And it's very easy to think, man, he was so helpful for so long and he just took a wrong turn there at the end. And honestly, it's not like that. It, to me, it's extremely consistent, at least in my own judgment. Uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 3, for instance. And let's look at the house of David. Second Samuel in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We read here, starting in verse 1, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And it says in verse 2, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Abinoam the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab by Abigail the widow, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And then the fourth, 
Adonijah, the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, the sixth Ethraim. There's several sons here. And the Bible refers elsewhere to the sons of David. But notice Adonijah is right there and he would be in line. Amnon, his, the Bible tells us, was killed. We won't go on all the details. I'm just noting that. The first son, Amnon, is killed. Chiliab is not described any place else that I can find. But there's a general understanding that he must have died. Maybe he even died extremely young. We, I, I don't know the details. Absalom died. And, but you can understand, start thinking of Absalom, why he might have thought, hey, you know, I, I could be king. That he was in line. He was in line. It would have been right. Then Absalom died. Well, if the first three are dead, who is the next living son? Adonijah, not Solomon. It's easy to dismiss Joab's thinking, but there's a logic to it. Adonijah is legitimately in line for the throne. In fact, the sons of David were actually invited to the coronation of Adonijah. Many people probably would have expected him to be king. And if you're Joab, maybe that would have made sense to you. In fact, before Solomon was born and you're Joab, you're expecting Adonijah to be king. Maybe you're interacting with him. Maybe you're teaching him a thing or two about working with the sword because you want a great king like David was king. And then if there's buzz and talk of Solomon, the Bible doesn't talk about God giving uh, Joab a great vision of Solomon being king. Where are the tales of Solomon's great battles? Where are the tales of Solomon leading men in like David, you know, and being covered with gore and mire, right? Like the rest. How many presidents have we had? It was a while before the first president who didn't actually have active military service in a war. It bothered the country in the United States. Many people are like, well, do we want someone to be commander in chief who actually hasn't been commanded by the commander in chief? It was awkward for the country. We had enough wars going on. We had a store and then suddenly it's like, well, you know, what do we, what do we do with this? There's a lot of reason you'd question as Joab. Do I really want Solomon commanding the armies? Of the Lord, does that make, would the Lord want Solomon doing those things? Mighty man thinking would probably say no. If anything, Solomon shows himself to be kind of a bookworm or a scroll worm, I guess. I'm not really sure, you know, what you would call such a person back then. Um, there was a lot of logic to that. Solomon is tainted. Solomon is not the child of the adultery between David and Bathsheba but was the next child of a union that was a stain on uh, the throne and a stain in Israel's history. There are a lot of mighty man reasons to decide, you know what, if you're Joab, think about it. David's made mistakes before. He's been stirred by his heart and by his emotions to make choices that were wrong for Israel. When Absalom died, he grieved to the point that all of his other men were going to leave. And it wasn't for me, Joab, pointing that reality out to him. He would have ruined all of Israel. God had used Joab to make such things clear. If you were Joab, how hard would it have been to resist your own temptations at this point to think this is just one more time when David's being led by his emotions and it's not good for Israel. And God's people need better. And Joab was wrong. 
it wasn't that Joab took a turn. Joab just continued in mighty man thinking all the way to his death because he confused his decisions with God's will. And that is very, very easy to do. Brethren, there's times coming that need more than mighty man thinking and mighty man character. Uh, we won't turn to these for the sake of time. I want to focus on some others. But for instance, there's a, a verse in Jeremiah 46. Just write down Jeremiah 46. Uh, where it talks about for the times to come. Actually, this is actually specifically about Egypt. But it talks about the trouble that was coming on Egypt. It says your mighty men, they're going to be bumping into each other. They're going to be no help to you. Like the three stooges. Anybody remember the three stooges? Mighty men in their day. Uh, the Bible says of the day of the Lord that's coming, like in Zephaniah chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the mighty men not being enough. Revelation 6 talks about the mighty men cowering and asking the stones to fall on them and crush them so they don't have to face Jesus Christ and his return and their terror for the times that they're in. The future is not for those who settle for being mighty men. It's for those who are willing to go beyond that. God wants us to move beyond the mighty men. He's not looking for mighty men. He's looking for those who will exceed them. And for those who will go further. Now, for example, turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23. For thus says the eternal, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the eternal, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight. You know, we're actually told by Jesus Christ that at his coming, there will be those who boast about the miracles they did in faith and use that as some kind of uh, excuse for the acts of iniquity that they have done. And they'll say, Lord, you taught in our streets. You know, we literally cast out demons in your name. We healed people. In your name. And now you reject us? That can be its own form of mighty man thinking. Looking on the outward. And not recognizing what God does. And Jesus Christ says that he will tell them. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity. God's looking for something else. He's looking for humility. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel. In chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16. This is actually one of my. Favorite stories. I feel like God puts me in this spot way too often. I wish I could say I always handled it as well as David. Second Samuel chapter 16. So we have David on the run. His son Absalom has rebelled against him. And so he and his mighty men are on the run. So as he does so, Second Samuel 16 and verse 6. They come across this guy Shimei, the son of Girah. 2 Samuel 16 and verse 6. And what does Shimei do? Shimei throws stones at David and all the servants of David. These are the mighty men, it says. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. And here's this one dude. I always imagine him as some kind of scrawny guy. He doesn't have to be scrawny. 
It's just in my head. He looks really scrawny. And he's just throwing rocks at the deadliest people on earth, it seems. You know, there's these people with swords and the rest. And he's just throwing uh, rocks and throwing dirt. And verse 7, Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Eternal has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Eternal has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Now, it was wrong for Shimei to do this. David was the eternal's anointed, and Shimei eventually pays the price under Solomon. So, no doubt, this is wrong. This is a sin. It was shameful behavior, and it cost Shimei his life later. But it could have cost him his life right then based on mighty man thinking. And that's what you actually see, a mighty man thinking here. Verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, man, those sons of Zeruiah, what is up with those guys? Anyway, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. Which is generally unhealthy uh, to have that done. So now, on one hand, i got to think, you know, he's being hit by rocks too, Abishai is. They're all getting hit by rocks. But he was ready to go. This is wrong. This is a sin. Your God's anointed. Let me go take him out. But how does David respond? Verse 10. The king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? That was not exactly a compliment. So let him curse. Because the eternal has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, all the mighty men there. See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the eternal has ordered him. It may be the eternal will look on my affliction, that the eternal will repay me with good for his cursing this day. So as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went alongside the hillside and opposite them and cursed as he went, throwing stones at him and kicked up dust. What remarkable, humble restraint that exemplified not the mighty men, but David. That's what God is looking for. Humility, for instance. Humility, self-control. The last few verses we'll look at. Look at Matthew chapter 26. We'll see an example of self-control by the son of David, Jesus Christ, when he could have used mighty man thinking instead. So we have the case where he is being arrested. And you have uh, mighty man Peter going to bring out a sword, chop off an ear. It's time to go. I was going to say to guns again. It's not guns. Go to swords, whatever it is. He was about to go to town, take care of business. David, I mean, uh, Peter is ready to die. He's ready to die. And Jesus chastises him for his actions. And instead, verse 52, it says, Jesus said to him, this is Matthew 26, verse 52, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? That is thousands and thousands of angels. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Do you know what kind of self-restraint it takes? Understanding that at any time, Jesus Christ could have decided, forget this, humanity is not worth it. And with a word to his father, legions of angels come and wipe us out like some movie uh, summertime blockbuster apocalypse and we're done. And that's it. He had that power in his fingertips, at his mouth at any moment to end his suffering and chose to restrain himself and allow his accusers to have the day because there was a larger picture at purpose. I mean, at, at work there. It's not mighty men thinking. 
but it is the thinking of the son of David, Jesus Christ. There's so many passages we could look at that do give us that sight. Proverbs 16 talks about how you have those who are wise are stronger than a mighty man. They're able to take a building, right? That's at Proverbs 21. Uh, being slow to anger. Those who are slow to anger are stronger than a mighty man. If we'll look, there are examples we need, examples of what we're supposed to be. Not everything should be solved in a mighty man way. What did the Jesus Christ do when the crowds were coming at him and they wanted to throw him off a cliff? He didn't just suddenly invoke, son of God power, you know, and suddenly it looks like some Japanese cartoon and there's lightning coming out of the sky. People are frying in front of him and all the rest. No, he actually hid himself and got through the crowd and went away. In conclusion, it's easy to idolize people of expertise and strength and power like the mighty man. But the Bible doesn't actually point to us, point us to them as those kinds of examples. It tends to point us to those who exceed the mighty men. For instance, it points us to David and it points us to Jesus Christ. They were amazing. And their example should inspire us to, to be able to seek to be strong, to seek to become good at what we do. But at the same time, God is looking for more. Don't settle for being a mighty man. Aim higher and go beyond.